I'm Jason Klom, and this is Not a Paleontologist, my Substack podcast. Hello. If you aren't familiar, this is my Substack podcast. If you're finding this elsewhere, you'll find my writings at jasonklom.substack.com. This week's episode, A Hero's Meal, originally published May 26th, 2021. A note. I submitted this a while back to Taco Bell Quarterly, a fast food fanzine, and if I bounced back from being rejected by that, then I'm pretty sure I can do anything. I partially grew up in a Taco Bell. Actually, I was a bit too old to still really be considered growing up when our tiny hamlet of Oneonta, New York finally got a Taco Bell in the 90s, but saying I became a man in Taco Bell has other implications I choose not to explore. My best friend, Dan Gomiller, worked at a Taco Bell Express that was inside a gas station owned by influential Oneonta family, the Betty Alls, eventually working his way up to becoming assistant manager. The Taco Bell Express would occasionally be patronized by the Betty All children, including Carly Betty All, who would later rise to prominence as part of the Broadway cast of Hamilton. Our brushes with future fame may have been few and far between back then, but in the interim, I lived the sweet life, courtesy of Dan's Taco Bell job. None of this because Dan, who had to start working at 16 to pay rent to his dad, had been a grown-up for years, involved any impropriety on Dan's part. The statute of limitations would have more than passed by now, but as it turns out, Dan was a veritable angel. He wouldn't even fork over leftovers they were legally required to trash. The sweet life did involve, however, breaking the Taco Bell menu with a special burrito. Special because, of course, this was off-menu. There is zero doubt in my mind that there were people in Los Angeles my age at the time who were debauching themselves and getting free $100,000 items because of who they knew, but getting no greater thrill than I was when Dan, as my brain pictures it, took off his Taco Bell visor, looked me dead in the eyes and said, it's time. He would then step to the other side of the counter and place that oh-so-heavenly order. Two scoops of chicken, rice, two squirts of nacho cheese, two squirts of sour cream, lettuce, tomato, and three cheese blend. It was, as Dan reminds me, a very gushy burrito. Well, let's just say that it had competition in the gushing department. Emotionally, I mean. I couldn't stop thinking about this burrito, or talking about it when Dan and I were hanging out, not at Taco Bell. Thinking about it now as a years-long vegetarian, my hippocampus is nonetheless aflame with the undying need to shove that delicious burrito in my face. I often have difficulty sitting still or appreciating what's in front of me, but my memories surrounding this burrito are nothing but in-the-moment happiness. Sitting down across from Dan, us each with our special burrito, life felt absolutely fucking in place. And we both needed it. By the time Dan was assistant manager, I was closing out my teens and Dan had just turned 20. It was 1999 and my parents would soon divorce and Dan would much sooner be living on his own. We were fortunate to have one another as friends, but we were still where a lot of people are at that age. Not quite lost, not quite sure what the path is. Little moments, like eating a goddamn custom-made chicken burrito at a Taco Bell Express, were things you could count on. Consistency, especially when it came from your best friend or the people he trained like a damn pro, was essential, and Taco Bell was the place to get it. Dan and I would then spend part of the evening walking off the calories, back to his dad's house, or eventually Dan's first apartment, usually quoting Monty Python sketches to each other on the way, or planning out our future in entertainment as we talked about our banal, cold, damp, upstate New York existences. Back at Dan's, he'd play a video game and I'd use his computer to edit or write, or basically just have access to high-speed internet. I'd usually fall asleep watching Dan play video games, or we'd fall asleep watching TV like Syphil and Ollie or News Radio. News Radio gave me weekly access to my personal god, Phil Hartman, even if I couldn't be sure what weeknight to find him there, and the world had just lost him the year before. 
Still, I remain dedicated to the show, even during its tense, weird, and often underrated fifth and final season. On the other side of the country, at that exact same moment, as though I were just describing a specific day and time, sat Paul Sims in his car. He was coming off the heels of season four of News Radio and was, understandably, I think, involved in another project that took up most of his creative faculties. His new pilot overseas starred News Radio's Joe Rogan and involved a seemingly massive set for a three camera sitcom, including an indoor lake. The show was set in a fictional foreign land where Rogan's character, Jack, works in agricultural technology and gets in over his head due to his act-first, think-later personality. It was a huge undertaking. Along for some of the ride was author David Wilde, writing a book about that year's pilot season, where TV creators compete for the attentions of TV sellers and buyers. The book, entitled Showrunners, would be released in October of 1999, giving people with no clue what the pilot season or entertainment business are like a strong glimpse into the sheer anxiety sponge you have to be to even attempt to get a TV show made. No stranger to wringing out that sponge, in front of journalists or not, Paul Sims made it clear he was a man possessed. This should be no surprise, as I've been told his office at whichever studio news radio was being shot at at the time would fairly double as his residence when things got crazy. Knee-deep in overseas, hands predominantly off of news radio, Sims was, I think, a man in need of consistency. If he weren't, David Wilde wouldn't have made it a point to keep bringing up how often Paul found himself at Taco Bell to sustain himself. Seriously, it comes up a lot in this book, and this guy has to lay the groundwork of a tragic loss of a friend and co-star, the anxious writing against the expectations of everyone in charge of the guillotine, and how far into the process overseas gets before becoming the lowest-rated pilot in NBC history, and still, he doesn't skimp on the gastronomy. Taco Bell was that important to the story he wanted to tell. Not important enough, though, to tell us exactly what Paul was eating on these seemingly endless trips sort of south of the sort of border. This kind of information, while it might seem absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things, does give you a tiny glimpse into how a moment or a period of time felt. I only told you all the super secret ingredients to my holy burrito so that you could be there with me, even if you'll never quite understand what growing up with me was like. It's like when a docent lets you touch something in a museum. Maybe Thomas Edison held this wrench, maybe not, but the mind makes up stories and connections of a mythical transference of energy and unspoken information. The idea that he could have had his hands on the wrench gives you a spark of something that at least gives you a moment of appreciation, if nothing else, even if the constant touching and rubbing has ironically polished the relic to a like new finish. I hadn't yet booked Paul Sims on my podcast about news radio when I read through the Sims parts of Showrunners, but for some reason I thought I'd ask him anyway, to sate my curiosity. I needed to know his regular Taco Bell meal. On August 12, 2017, I got an unexpected spike of serotonin when I saw that Paul Sims had responded to my tweet, because yes, making this request on a public forum did feel less creepy. And as plainly as Dan had relayed the special burritos component ingredients to me when I asked mere hours ago, so did Sims respond as to his go-to. Bean and cheese burrito, crunchy taco supreme, large Sierra mist with extra ice. You can probably guess where this is going. I touched the wrench. I immediately went out and got that exact same meal, sans beef, something that normally would have caused me to question why I live my life the way I do. Instead, on that day, I took a moment. I've been given a lot of great opportunities in my life, and too often I take them, then let them pass by, not appreciating them as they happen. This time, because I knew my hero had once eaten this exact same meal, I was there in some small way. I'll never know what it was like to be on the set of news radio, but I continue to try and suss out small sparks of information that give me the ingredients to that otherwise unattainable, unique life experience. Paul later kindly sat down with my podcast co-hosts and I for three hours to talk about news radio. He answered any and all questions we had about the show. Nothing was off the table. Neither he nor I ever brought up the Taco Bell tweets. Good thing, too. I was so busy living in the moment for once that I would have been marinating in that shame for the rest of it. 
and crying every time I saw a chalupa. Not a Paleontologist is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. Find out more at StolenDress.com. You can follow me on Twitter at jklom, J-K-L-A-M-M, and follow me on Instagram at jasonklom, J-A-S-O-N-K-L-A-M-M, hashtag the professional blur. You'll find my writings at jasonklom.substack.com. You can find out more about me at jasonklom.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-K-L-A-M-M.com. Stolen Dress Entertainment. Hey, it's my turn. Ah!